0: Yo, technology,
1: what is it all about? But you have to understand that when the scientists publish something that we skim over between two pictures of cats on Facebook that say the models now predict that line is melting, you just do the math on the ice. it may not be in our lifetimes, but we can't stop it. We cannot right. reverse this. It's already happened. <laughs>
0: Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. This week, we have a very special one for you. Frederick Lalonde is on the program. Now, Frederick is the co-founder and CEO of a company called Hopper. They're a $10 billion online travel company. Lalonde is Canadian. He's a billionaire. And his next thing, he wants to save the planet from climate catastrophe. Um, So he has founded a new company called Deep Sky, and the vision is very big, um, which is to remove every ton of CO2 that we have emitted into the atmosphere since we got going on this whole industrial revolution thing back in the 1700s. So he's close to closing on his first $70 million seed round, quite a large seed round. for What he's doing at Deep Sky, which he calls basically an oil company in reverse. So instead of digging up fossil fuels, he's using energy to pump all that CO2 back underground. That's the idea. And this is interesting for a couple of reasons. A lot of people in climate tech are working on greening industries like energy or transport, what have you, Deep Sky is focused entirely on just taking carbon out of the atmosphere, removing anything that is kind of floating around in the air and the oceans, and figuring out how to do that at a scale by investing in and building up all these capabilities to do things like direct air capture, which is basically pulling CO2 right out of the ambient air, and again, potentially pulling it out of the oceans as well. So it's a very big idea. It's very risky. And as you will hear, Lalonde reckons that this is absolutely totally necessary because in his view we are already at a very unique and scary time where the effects of climate change are starting to compound and really lead to increasingly regular increasingly horrendous events like droughts like the heat wave in europe wildfires hurricanes mega storms and that they're basically compounding mathematically given what we have done Um, over these last nearly 300 years. So he's extremely eloquent about why and how he came to this view. And even if you totally disagree with him, I think you will find that he is great at putting into words what is happening right now as he sees it and as he says, the, the science sees it and why he feels that this time is so urgent. So without further ado, here he is, Frederick Lalonde of Deep Sky. Enjoy. So Deep Sky, love the name, what is the big idea? So the big idea is when we look at climate change, most people,
1: including myself a few years ago, are thinking we have another 80 years, we can reduce our emissions, haven't done really good at this in the past, but you know, if we just did this energy transition and gradually stopped burning so much fossil fuels, we're all gonna be okay. It turns out, that is not the case, If you look at the official uh, story that comes from the IPCC, since 2017, they've been talking about the need to remove CO2 from the atmosphere in order to meet our targets. We've not really met our targets, so Europe and North America have done a good job, but India and China have made up. We haven't reached peak oil. We haven't reached peak coal. And currently in the atmosphere, there are 424 parts per 1000000 of CO2. So if you have a million molecules, you have 422. We believe that the earth is not stable at that concentration present day, meaning we've already entered a period of spiraling acceleration that's gonna lead to enormous damage both economic and social, so you're going to see massive flooding, you're going to see massive fires, you are going to see heat waves that people can't survive. When we were saying this in 2019, it was all future tense, and I think everybody is going to agree that this summer was one of the tipping points in terms of consequences. And boy, wait until you see this year's hurricane season. We're already seeing insurers leave the massive markets like Florida. Yeah. And so th- there's a couple of things around this. One is there's a general sense of it's the economy or the planet, or at least the, the discourse for most of my adult life has been set up that way. This is very much an economic problem there's been five mass extinctions the last one wiped out 95 percent of all life on the planet and we came out of that once we blow our face offs and send ourselves back to the stone age the dolphins will be super happy everything's <laughs> going to come back this is not an earth versus economy thing this is very much an economic problem to start so when you look at this even if we stopped fossil fuel emissions right now so let's say i shut down the economy today we are heading straight to five degrees. Um, We have actually passed 1.5 with force, and you actually see two degrees falling pretty soon. And now the scientific community is starting to catch up on this, there's a bunch of reasons around that. So we have concluded that every barrel of oil, every cubic meter of natural gas that we have burned is going to have to come out of the atmosphere. We're going to have to draw it down and put it back into the ground. There's a lot of problems around that. Um, First of all, the scale. If we were to stop the economy, that's about 860 billion tons that needs to come out. For scale, um, all shipping on the planet is 8 billion tons, all concrete's about 4 billion tons. So this is a scale as a civilization we've never dealt with. Um, and second, because we gave up on nuclear in the 70s, we do not actually have the energy to do this. We don't even have the energy to do the full energy transition. If everybody got an electric car tomorrow morning, all the grids would go down forever and never come back up. But more importantly, we don't have the energy requirements to do this. So we are staring a, you know, really at the precipice of this and regardless of social acceptability now, things are going to start to compound. Like real world damages are starting to pile up. And what we're seeing everywhere is the world is realizing we're going to have to take all this CO2 out of the air.
0: There's a book I'm reading right now called The Earth Transformed. Have you heard of this? Yes, I have. By Peter Frankopan, As to your point, like listening to you speak just now, it kind of like you read the you know first 30 pages of it. And it's kind of a the conceit of the book is looking at history through climate change. And so rather than analyzing it as like, you know, this battle and this civilization, it's like, you know, what drought or flood or extreme weather event influenced these civilizations of the past. And when he starts listing out what we're facing right now, my instinct is to be like, okay, I need to kind of get to the next part of the book where I don't feel so scared. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's really kind of like, oh, God, well, that's this all sounds extremely terrible and catastrophic and it sounds like the kind of the conceit of deep sky or what you're trying to do there is basically like it's already too late in a way what we need to do is basically press rewind on the outputs of civilization and put it all back is that effectively it yep you can run math on this and you know There's a couple of things there too.
1: Too late for what? (laughs) So exactly what are we talking about? So we we can explore that a bit. But if you just look at curving emissions, the main question you have to ask yourself is how much CO2 can be in the atmosphere? you know, without completely dislocating in a very short period of time when you think of things from a geological time frame, How much can the Earth actually support? And there's a very simple thing you can do. You can just pull up the ice core data that goes back about 800,000 years, and there's a natural cycle of CO2. We have this in a deck. It's been published in so many places. And you can just basically see the Earth kind of wants to stay between 180 and 280 parts per million, right? And 180 is an ice age, probably not great. We wouldn't do really good there too. 280 is kind of the top and there's these mechanisms that regulate it. And there's all these crazy things around that. So of course, rock, volcanic rock that gets exposed, removes CO2 because there's a mineralization effect. You, the CO2 turns into chalk, CO3. So when the Himalayan range came out of the ground, which is the youngest, but also one of the largest structures to come out, and it came out really fast for tectonic plague reasons, it caused an ice age. It sucked so much CO2, but this is over like, a hundred thousand years, right? We have actually done the work that nature takes about 150,000 years to do in a hundred. So we're in uncharted territory. And when you look at this band, you do know, this nice little spiral of up and down, you know, the natural cycle. And Al Gore short this in his, his documentary, you know, most people I talked to today or two, don't even know who he is, but he's the first one to actually put this chart up and you can see what we're doing is not normal. So the first thing is we're out of the one Sigma band of predictability, just with the, the fundamental thing. The second component of it is there are these climate forcing functions. They're called feedback loops. So the easiest way to explain this is if you think, let me melt a giant ice sheet, like the Larson B ice sheet. This is a giant mass that fell in the ocean in 2003 and it melted again in 21. If I was to stop the warming, stop the emissions, would the ice sheet form next winter? And of course, the answer is not. Even if I cooled the earth magically, it's going to take 10,000 years, 15,000 years for all that ice to come back. So you have all these things that are permanent, right, that actually lead to, oh, then there's less ice, so the ocean water is darker, it absorbs more. When the ocean gets warmer, you know what it does is outgases CO2, so it contributes to the warming. And so you have all these loops that kick in. And when you look at our models, they don't take the loops into account. They're mostly linear it's why they've been wrong every year we're saying oh let's look at what happened in the last end you know, cycles and we'll predict what's happening next and you could ask well why don't we actually predict this it's because nobody has ever collected data on losing greenland all the ice <laughs> we have no data points so you can't ask a scientist to model something that's never happened you can only model the most recent data set and try to do trends and put error bars and in the actual IPCC models, they have something they call low probability. So it's like three sigmas, you know, 10, 15% probability of happening where it's six degrees. The last time that happened is a period called the mid-Pliocene warm period, which was about three million years ago.
0: And that was what? Up six degrees.
1: I mean, again, there's a bunch of air bars around this, but you could take three, you can take five, you can take right. six. But the important thing is there was no more ice. And how do we know this? It's because we found palm trees In the Antarctic. We have the fossils. You can actually see the fossils of palm trees in the Antarctic. And so you can visualize that planet. The entire middle temperate area where we all live now is a desert, and the habitable parts are the poles, right? And then the actual shoreline of the eastern seaboard of the United States, was 100 miles inland. A hundred miles? This was published in the New York Times in 2003. You can find the article. It's it, it, They just figured out it's geology, right? You can find where the erosion is. And you just look at this, and we have clear estimates. If we lose all of the land ice of Greenland and Antarctica, it's 58 meters. So if you're in you know the imperial system, multiply that by three, roughly, of water. And so... We don't have models for all the ice is melted, but the last time we were at present day, forget adding anything, present day, these were factually, that factually the state that the planet was. And so, you know, this isn't Pangea. The continents were not like (laughs) different places. This is three million years ago. There weren't dinosaurs. There were mammoths, but not dinosaurs. So when you look at this on a geological time frame, you realize how bad it's going to be. The first thing that probably goes is agriculture. Because there's all these things. California is reliant on these reservoirs that are getting dry. Look at Uruguay, they're running out of water. There's a protein in wheat that once it's exposed for a sustained amount of time over a certain temperature, which I think is 28 Celsius, it falls apart. And the wheat just doesn't grow. And so these things are not linear. It's not like, oh, there's a little bit less water. It's a little bit hotter. You reach these tipping points where you might lose the whole crop. We don't know. And the point is we don't have the models on this because it's never happened. So there's this been this historic argument, again, for the past 20, 30 years. Oh, if we make this story sound too dark, people will disengage. That's also one of the big mistakes, in my opinion, because it's going to get bad. It's already really bad. It's, it's going to get a lot worse. It's going to accelerate. There are some moments where fear and panic are the appropriate response. And the climate crisis, contrary to a pandemic, which is fast, you know, everybody gets COVID, people, you know, the hospitals overflow in weeks, is slow, but once the damage starts, it accelerates and it probably compounds logarithmically. It's probably not a linear curve based on everything we're seeing. So I actually reject the argument that we need to sugarcoat this or be careful how we describe it. This is going to be bad. All of that said, I'm actually an optimist. Human beings have not been defeated by anything yet. We're going to get out of this. The question is: Are we going to get blown back to fifteen thousand hunter-gatherers on some peninsula, which actually happened to us <laughs> in our history, or are we going to maintain a continuity of civilization?
0: I laugh because I'm just—I'm visiting my parents in Memphis, Tennessee. I live in California, and the houses here are—it's all so vast, and it's—you know—there's big trucks and grass everywhere. There's—you know lawn which is a whole other thing unto itself and it just feels so excessive and not like my parents are rich it's just like you know they live in a part of the place where california when really it goes a long way and you kind of think well how's this all gonna work when you talk about kind of going back to you know we're going from seven billion people back to fifteen thousand hunter gatherers what are you guys doing what is the kind of if we kind of step back and be like okay we need to rewind we need to kind of suck all of the stuff back out of the atmosphere and do it immediately and grand scale how are you guys attacking that what is deep sky so the
1: romantic way of describing it is we're trying to terraform the planet so elon wants to go do that on mars it yeah. occurred to me that we might want to do it here first as a as an order um, fair. so if you're thinking <laughs> about removing hundreds of gigatons of something from a planet's atmosphere you're to make it more habitable that's actually the what Merriam-Webster definition of terraforming, right? If you think of what it actually means to do that is you're gonna to have to pull it out, right? So the the very first thing you you have to say is the energy transition is not enough. It all has to come out. So there's a whole bunch of interesting implications intellectually. One is, you know, we think we're burning a barrel of oil at $80, 90, maybe 120 when it's high. It's gonna cost us more like 420 by the time this is all done. And so, first of all, fossil fuels are the most expensive energy in the world compared to anything else, if you let the CO2 go up in the atmosphere. So one thing you can do that as a species we have been able to do since 1972 is to capture the CO2 at a chimney stack and put it back underground. This is entirely a waste management problem. Why is that different than the atmosphere? Well, when you have a chimney stack, and depends what you're burning, but let's say it's you know natural gas or something. About one out of three molecules are going to be CO two. So you got some interesting stuff like cyanide that you have to, but we know what to do with that industrially. You know, there's there's processes to dealing with those. But you're going to have water water vapor and things. But the CO two is thirty percent. So million molecules, three hundred thousand of CO two. You separate the CO2. It's actually a big, fat, ugly molecule. It's, it's kind of easy to you know, get it to go in a corner on its own. And we, we've known how to get streams of CO2, like 100% purity for a while now. Then you take it and you re-inject it underground. There's a bunch of ways of doing that. And what you've done is you've avoided the actual warming effect of burning that natural gas. When you let it go into the atmosphere, it falls to 400 and something ppm, which means 400 molecules for that same million. So I now need 50 to 100 times more energy to get the same amount of CO2. My contactor, the thing that's in contact with all this atmosphere, needs to be enormous, or I need to be moving air at incredible pressures or velocities, which require more energy. So every time that we let a ton of CO2 escape from a chimney, knowing that we're gonna have to remove it, we have just 50-folded our cost. In energy and dollars and infrastructure.
0: How is that 50 fold? And I'm sorry, I'm bad at math. So I apologize if you just explained that.
1: (laughs) It's just a general estimate of when you look at how much energy I need to run an air removal system, or if I'm pulling it out of the ocean, because the ocean is actually the largest store of CO2 and it absorbs from the atmosphere. When you just look at the technologies that we understand today, it takes about 50 times more energy, 50 times more land mass. It's just a rough estimate. To extract it from the ambient air. Yes, and it's only a question of concentration. It's nothing else than yeah. you. You have to move a lot more of the other stuff to to get it right. Like a, you can explain that pretty easily. Um, then you have other problems, which is if you're using a solid material like a filter, you move the air, the CO2 sticks in it, the other stuff gets through, like a HEPA filter in your vacuum cleaner. Um, if you're using a chimney stack, you can you know reuse the filter a lot, but if you're building an entire city that's trying to remove it from the atmosphere, what do you do with a billion tons of soiled filters? And when you scale something up, you've just scaled up your waste management problems from your industrial processes, you've scaled up your supply chain requirements. So as a civilization, one of the absolute dumbest things that we're doing right now is we're continuing to let the natural gas emissions, the fossil fuel emissions escape. You can't get rid of oil and gas. Those people that are like, oh, let's close oil down, don't understand that there would be no food. Like, we we are so entrenched in this energy. You can't get rid of it. And I have not seen a reasonable scenario of any model that gets us out of fossil fuels in less than 30 to 50 years. But if you don't take this ideologically and you just use logic, why are we still dumping the CO2 in the atmosphere? It's nonsensical. That's one of the hardest things that people need to get their head around. So we are going to need fossil energy. It should be illegal to dump it in the atmosphere at this point. I believe what we should be doing is a program where the government say to anybody who's emitting fossil fuel energy emissions, in two years, every ton you have to put out, you're going to have to pay to take out from the atmosphere, or you can capture it at the source. Do whichever you prefer. If you did that program, you would create the right incentive because you would be taking future costs and bringing them present day. And we've done this with all sorts of pollutants. We actually know that works.
0: So that's large-scale carbon capture. And I lived in London for many years. And going all the way back to 2008, I covered energy. I covered the North Sea. And I remember then, in 2008, people saying, well, you know, we have got to nail carbon capture. This very idea you just explained, everybody's like, yes, 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 yes. This is this is urgent. We have to do it. Let's make it happen. And the first pilot project in the North Sea still has not got off the ground because it's so expensive and nobody will fund it, um, and nobody has been historically willing to fund it. So I guess the question is, is like, how do you solve that problem? And again, I think you have a very clear sense that you know the house is on fire. A lot of other people don't, especially people in the oil and gas industry who are like, well, this sounds really expensive and we you know. We've known as you say, we've known how to do this for years. We just haven't wanted to because it's too expensive. It doesn't make us it doesn't make sense financially. My quick answer to that is all
1: you have to do is wait. <laughs> Things are gonna get so bad in the next five years that the funding issue, social acceptability issues, those are all gonna go away. And and as human beings, we have a really, really hard time understanding exponentially accelerating systems right so we're, we're very good at linear math we're, we evolved as hunter gatherers so we're really good at spotting movement or, or distinguishing colors or remembering where edible things are found in a, in a you know in a, in a geospatial environment the thing about like exponential math and like this is the example that you'll find on wikipedia they teach it in school is you take a a lake this is a very large lake you know, one of the Great Lakes maybe, and you have an aquatic plant that's, you know, just the size of your palm, and it's doubling every day, gradually covering this lake. It takes 50 years for the plant to cover half of the lake. How long before the lake is fully covered? Everybody gets this wrong.
0: 50 years plus one day.
1: Exactly. It's one day. It goes 25, 50, a hundred. And so we saw this during the pandemic, right? We, we, we had hospital systems that were overwhelmed in days. The problem, this is a slow moving exponential function, right? Which is like my, my giant Lake, but. When you realize what compounding means is it's like you lost 10 million acres in California last year, if that was the case, then, you know, very quickly, that'll be a hundred and a hundred will be 100 and 100 will be a 1000 So we are at the beginning of these things. And the first things that are starting to fall apart are the insurance models. Because insurance companies need linearly predictable outcomes to be in business. If you have nonlinear risk, everybody. And so look at what happened in California and Florida this this summer. You have two of the major insurers have left this area, which it, walk that forward three, five years. All the insurers will leave. It will be impossible to insure property in those states. So what's going to happen? Well, the government will have to change the rules. They will have to say, you're obligated to insure, in which case the Private companies will say we have shareholders, we can't, and so what will happen is, in some form or another, property damage will be rolled up the same way natural, you know, national security and defense is, and then just continue walk that forward. What happens when it's food? What happens when?
0: Yeah, I a few years ago, I was uh, I did a big piece on when the wildfires were really really bad here, and I went up to an area of the state where one community was just raised, just completely destroyed. And I was talking to some um, people in like the neighboring community, and they're saying our fire insurance has gone up three or four times. And a lot of these people are on a fixed income. They can't afford it. Others were like, we cannot insure our home. No one will give us insurance. And at that point, that is a stranded asset. No one is going to buy a house that can't be insured in a wildfire area. And at that point, it's like, well, what does that person do? And then you get to your point of like that compounding of like, well, if all of a sudden you're living in this, basically your house that is the main source of wealth is effectively worth zero. That's a big societal problem and that leads to all kinds of other things and, you know, and on and on and on it goes.
1: So one of the issues is all these things have happened in remote communities and that's where, you know, wildfires and this happened in Canada too. But what happens when that statement is true for Los Angeles? homes are no longer affordable in palm springs in fort lauderdale right where millions of people and this is coming it's it's just a that's just an extrapolation of what's going on so what i'm saying is eventually the cost factor will be moot right you like whatever the cost of doing this is going to be the cost that that we do the example that i like to use is this you know pretty timely right now with the Oppenheimer movie is if you think of the race for the atom bomb, nobody was looking at the bills. And actually not a lot of people know this, but the only reason that the U.S. got the bomb first is because of the Hoover Dam. The difficulty existed partially in the science of making the thing blow up and, you know, I wouldn't actually say safely. I don't think that applies to any of this, but just making (laughs) the thing work. But the real issue behind it was actually enriching the The material, the the radioactive material, the plutonium. And so what most people don't know is that was happening offside. It was not Los Alamos. And they were using the electricity from the Hoover Dam. So when Hoover Dam was massively overbuilt as a a public works project, as you know. And so they had all this free power. Um, And at night, they were just diverting all the electricity away from Las Vegas and Reno and just using that to enrich the plutonium. And if you think of it, the science actually came from the Germans. They actually had figured most of this stuff out. And so it's actually America's abundance of electric energy that allowed us to the North America to get the bomb first. So nobody was looking at cost. Nobody's saying, Oh, how much a kilowatt, you know, it's yeah. like what do what we what are we getting, what are we charging? Let's go negotiate the cost with the Hoover Dam people. Right. They were just like, no, no, just run it. And so this is coming. It's going to come gradually and it's going to compound. There's no doubt that at some point the rules of insurance will change. Like the government is have to change what insurers are allowed and not allowed to do the same way there are rules around banking. There's no doubt that there's a point coming in our future, very likely in our lifetimes, where the government is directly gonna use government um, assets, cash, everything to remove CO2. It, it just doesn't work economically, it has to be a collective effort. And I actually predict a world where the countries that are doing that will start doing nuclear cam- uh, military campaigns to hit assets that are putting up CO2 to take them off the grid. I can very well see a rich country that's realizing what chaos we're in now doing a military strike against a cold fire plant. This is not science fiction if you think of it. This sounds very dark. No, but I mean, we, we hit all sorts of things. Look at what's happening in Russia and Ukraine. We hit schools, grain factories. Like we, As a species, we have no issue doing that. So I would argue history is in the favor of that narrative, if anything else, right?
0: So what are you doing at Blue Sky to address this? Because I think we got a little off track because it's also kind of compelling and kind of intense. So what is Deep Sky and what are you trying to do? So let's talk about straight up how
1: you remove gigatons of CO2 from the atmosphere, it's pumps and fans. So you can do two things. You can run the atmosphere through a, a collector of some kind, separate out the CO2, or you can actually run the water from the ocean and separate out the CO2. So we all learn this in school. There's something called Henry's Law, which talks about the solubility of CO2. So if you have a gas and and the gas can dissolve in the liquid, it will, it will do so. And so we we learned this in school and we immediately forgot it because it's not that useful in real life. And so the reason that you get CO2 in water is that's how you get Coke or Perrier, right? It's all it's, it's soluble. So there's 150 times more concentration of CO2 for the same volume of, of, of ocean water. And the ocean is the thing that's in the most contact with the atmosphere. It's the thing that we have the most of on the planet.
0: It's the biggest surface area,
1: yes, yes, and the the top of the ocean. So if I pulled out a billion tons of co2 from the atmosphere, the ocean would give me 500 million tons back because for the last hundred years it's been ingassing it's been absorbing part of our emissions. It's actually why there's a delay between the emissions and the warming. It's actually why it's actually making this problem more complicated. Um, so if you just pull out of the ocean, what will happen is it will eventually suck in the co2. We don't know when. So we might be doing this and the dolphins will benefit (laughs) because we'll be gone. So actually what you need to do is pull simultaneously from the air and the ocean to actually get the equation, right? Then you'll have billions of tons of co2 no you can't make vodka or carbon nanotubes at that scale (laughs) whatever you would try to make with that co2 you would saturate the market in minutes so the only thing you can do is put it underground we were talking about this earlier there's ways to do that and so what deep sky is doing is it is trying to build the project development the infrastructure to remove co2 and sequester it underground using renewable power one way to think about this is Deep Sky is an oil and gas company. We do exactly the same things. We have all the geological capability, drilling. We can actually do the seismic. We have the ability to refine and transform. We have the ability to trade a commodity. So it's an oil and gas company running backwards. Instead of pulling fossil fuel out you know, to generate energy, we're consuming energy to remove carbon from the atmosphere.
0: That sounds expensive. It is. <laughs> so, have you raised money? If so, how much? Like, and and I guess more fundamental question: It's kind of an obvious and non-obvious at the same time. Why are you doing this?
1: I mean, I'm a software guy, right? So, I founded a travel app. We have 100 million users, and you know, we've been we've been planting trees to offset the emissions and trying to do the right thing. But I've been watching this problem compound, and v- around 2019, 2020, after doing a bunch of models, I came to the conclusion it was going to have to come out historically. And I thought like every historic ton we've put up has to come out. And I thought I was alone and I was crazy. And there's other people that have done the same modeling. Bill Gates has been on this for decades. And quite honestly, I was looking around and talking to all my buddies that are much bigger billionaires than me, and nobody was doing anything. And I was like, oh, my God, Like somebody has to start this. Somebody has to go in and, and jump into it. So the motivation is just that once you can't unsee this problem when you run it properly and you look at it for what it is. Right. is. Um, second, I'm Canadian, and I I live in the cool part of Canada, which is the French part, you know, Montreal. And when you look at the east part and part of Canada, the geology and the power generation infrastructure – is incredibly well-suited for this. So we have not the best storage in the world, but a not enough of it, but we also have billions of kilowatts of very cheap renewable power that comes from hydro and nuclear. And we actually export a lot of it to some dubious usages like crypto farms, but also we waste a ton of this. Like Ontario curtailed, I think it was 7 billion kilowatts of steam energy. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that we can't export it to the US at a profit, so we just waste it. And you tell this to Europeans right now and they get angry, right? We generate power at 1.4 cents and we waste it. But when I looked at the geological map of Canada and I looked at the power profile that we currently have... It dawned on me that we could kickstart the industry. What's there will not get you to 100 billion tons, but it could get you to 10 million. And once you have 10 million, you have the industrial capabilities, you solve a lot of the scale of problems. I will point to SpaceX and Tesla as examples of things that got to scale and then kind of revolutionized everything around it. Um, and it turns out... Software guys think about problems differently because we're used to all sorts of things. You know, a lot of it, we don't have physical consequences to what we do most of the time. And we have access to a lot of capital. We brought you the cryptocurrency collapse. You're welcome. Thank you so
0: much. Thank yes, you. Yes. We've great? had lots of crypto folks on here and it's always including um, Alex Mashinsky, who is now uh, in federal custody uh, amongst others. But yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful world. So thank you. We like to make up the rules as we go. We like to think laws <laughs> don't apply to us. And we throw enormous amounts of
1: money at things that you know sometimes make no sense. The good part is sometimes we get it right and you get incredible things out of that often. And so what I'm saying is we have an enormous tolerance to risk. And one of the things that has come out of the Elon Musk empire is there's a methodology to develop non-software things like rockets and cars at the same speed, give or take as we build software or cryptocurrencies. So we're, we're approaching this like my generation like my industry does there's all these stories about Tesla building the cars without the roof being installed right like so you there's a way to approach uh, project development the same way and there's a way to accelerate everything to do a minimum viable everything how do you do seismic how do you do drilling in a way that you get the smallest possible viable thing so I actually think my you know my brethren are more suited to to the time urgency of scaling this up. The expertise for a lot of this exists in oil and gas, but they're used to multi-decade timelines, you know, strip mining entire mountains, right? This is, I think we need a new generation of thinking around this. So we, you know, Deep Sky exists as a 2.0 version of industrial development solely for the purpose of removing and sequestering carbon from
0: the atmosphere. Can we go back further to like, you know, when you were in short pants? Like, is this something that, is innate to you where and how did you grow up and there was a, is this like uh have you always been an entrepreneur has that always been your thing or did you kind of grow into it or discover it
1: as it pertains to climate i was completely oblivious to it um i had absolutely no understanding of this i had no particular inclination to care about this until um, quite recently uh, what tipped the interest for the climate part of it is the you know, when we were Hopper is going to sell maybe $7 billion of travel this year, that's the amount of, you know, cars and hotels and flights and all this stuff. Um, And you know, a few years ago, I was like, well, we gotta do our part here. And so we started a nature-based program. I didn't know it was even called that. I'm just like, let's put some trees in the ground. So we flew to Africa and Madagascar and partnered up with the right people. And so we put 25 million trees in the ground and I thought I was awesome and I was solving climate change. Then I actually started reading about it and looking at the math and I was like, wait, this is not what I thought it was.
0: So you are like, I've planted 25 million trees, I'm the man. I'm a responsible tech guy. And then you started looking into the numbers. You're like, never mind.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah like, none of this matters. I'm not even close. What if the trees burn? <laughs> um, and then, of course, we, you know, everybody at Deep Sky has kids. Where they're all in the same, you know age group, like, you know, six to 12. Uh, And I started looking at my daughter and I'm like, oh my God, like, this doesn't make any sense. So that's where the climate thing came from. It's guilt, basically, I guess is the motivation. And then I, when I dug into it, I realized that the way we solve problems, you know, again, in the software world might actually be conducive to a new approach. As an entrepreneur, I quit school when I was 19. I've never held a job, I've never had a mortgage. So yeah, I'm one of these hardcore guys that doesn't understand anything else. Um, I started my first company at 19 and then we- What was that first company? All we were doing is um, graphic design. You know, back then, I'm, I'm pretty old now, so when you you know designing something digitally was a thing. Then I moved on to building this completely exotic thing called a website. You know, it's a time where you, oh, would, you pay somebody money to do that. Um, and then when I was in my very very early twenties, we started a company that was doing e-commerce. So we were sending uh, inventory information bookings over this thing called the internet that would use protocols.
0: Was this dot-com time-ish, like late 90s, early 2000s?
1: Yeah, it was very, very dot-com. It was late 90s, uh, pre-crash. And we connected you know, tens of thousands of hotels over the internet in Expedia. Um, the almighty Expedia that spun out of Microsoft was selling billions of dollars of travel and they were sending 100,000 faxes a day. <laughs> and so,
0: Are you serious? 100,000? Oh, yeah, that's true. You would
1: book it. <laughs> yeah, like in 1999, 2000, you would, be, you would be booking. It would all look like it was the internet and it yeah. ended up in a ball at the, at the hotel front desk. <laughs> um, and it turns out by a of fluke, the CEO of Expedia of the day out of Seattle was from Montreal. Where I live, and um, he just showed up unannounced. It was something like out of a Simpsons episode, and within a month we sold my company to them and and worked for those guys. That was actually probably more of an entrepreneurial journey because those are the guys that went and did Zillow. So this oh, yeah. is Rich Barton, Lloyd Frank, yeah. So those guys are they're hardcore. Rich is a a visionary, and so. Um, I spent four years working for them and they were, they were kind of crazy. They would just bet on smart people in a way that most organizations don't. And so they gave me a giant p to run and I couldn't read a PNL because I hadn't been to school. Um, and so, you know, they, they would take enormous risks and they would, you know, help you clean up your mistakes. And so I came out of those four years with a way better understanding of what it is to build a, a company. And then I went on to build Hopper and now this.
0: You left Hopper at some point, or are you still doing that?
1: No, no, I'm still the CEO. No, Hopper is a It's a good point. Hopper uh, Hopper's a $10 billion private company that's raised a billion dollars. Um, and, you know, we haven't taken it public yet. You know, that's, that's in the cards for the future. Um, Deep Sky was started out of necessity. I needed to do that like I needed a bullet in the head. Um, but when I saw what happened last <laughs> summer and, you know, and updated our models, I could not do it.
0: When you say what happened last summer, there's a lot of calamities happening at the moment. What was the thing where you're like, Mm, I can't just keep planting trees. This has, I have to do this.
1: Drought. So as
0: you walk forward, that this is an economic problem, you can
1: ask the question, what will hit first? And so if you, if you do that reasonably, it's not the storms, it's not the fires. Those will happen. But before Los Angeles burns down, we have some time. Before New York is underwater, we have some time. But insurance models will break and they've started to. And then the other thing is, we're going to lose our global food supply. You will also have areas of the world that run out of drinking water. So this is happening in Uruguay right now. It almost happened in uh, South Africa. It will happen in other places. There are cities in the United States that are at risk of that.
0: In California.
1: Yeah, uh, Phoenix. uh, Yeah, so there will be major metropolitan areas that run out of water uh, in our lifetimes. But the first thing that's already started, and it started basically in the early 2000s, is drought. Um, 10% of the arable land, Um, in california has gone offline and so the river's running dry in europe last summer europe was under like a lot of pressure this year it's heat but last year it was drought you had all these things that came out of the rivers you know old warships from the second world war but there's this thing called the hunger stone stone i remember seeing that the hunger stone yeah you can google this after this so in the i think it's the 400 to 600 in the middle age, there was a massive drought. It was, this was a natural phenomena and they lost the ability to produce food. And they actually carved these stones at the edge of where the water level was, so basically the bottom of the river because it was dry. And it says, "Those who read this weep because you shall go hungry." Um, and they're called hunger stones. Um, and so these came out of the water last summer, um, and they were kind of like Yikes. rolled into the news cycle and forgotten. But they—they they are literally predicting a collapse of global. Food supply, and most people look at that and go, "No, no, no, no. We have technology, we have genetically engineered, we have machines." But actually, if there's no water, you you lose the the productivity. Um, so, what I did two years ago is I started following the agricultural reports that start to come in about you know we're late July now, early August, September. They come in, and for the first year, you were seeing dislocations in everything from. You know, the basic crops like wheat and, and barley, you were seeing corn go down. And these were not dramatic drops, but everything dropped at the same time. Um, and it would happen everywhere around the world. And so this year we are teetering on the border of a rice shortage. And if you lose rice, like that's 4 billion people, um, we're seeing major problems with wheat. But that's being like muddled into what's happening in Ukraine and Russia right now. It's not only that. One thing you can do, it's very simple. Go to San Francisco, then just go across the mountains, and then drive down, like in the San Joaquin Valley. And you will see hundreds of miles of trees and crops that have been uprooted and are abandoned. And we we have pictures of this. You can find them very easily. We grow our food in a desert. It's very economically effective, but if there's no water, nothing naturally grows there. So drought, that's what kicked it in. We, We looked at the agriculture reports, and I was like, okay, we can't wait most of what is happening this summer was predicted to happen in 20 to 40 years
0: right and again i think the impulse is to look at what's happening right in front of you and be like i mean that's bad but you know like
1: it yeah, just we'll we just out.
0: we just had a really rainy winter like come on guys or whatever or to kind of just kind of look away and it's very easy for people to be like you're just catastrophizing it's not going to be that bad. It's not going to be that dramatic. But what you're saying is this idea of the compound, it's like compound interest. You know, you start out yep. with a uh, hundred bucks and then before you know it, you're like, oh my God, I have a hundred thousand because it keeps compounding and doubling and doubling and doubling.
1: Or or if you borrow a hundred bucks at twenty five percent interest rate, <laughs> it goes the other way on you. It's exactly the same principle, right?
0: Right. And so to your point, going back to like kind of this idea of just wait for people because i also like but going back to um mid 2000s you had sir nicholas stern did this big economic report on like the kind of impact of climate and he called it then or, inca- impact of carbon rather it was some turn of phrase it was something like not accounting for the pollution for the carbon that we have produced is the greatest market failure in human history or something like that and everybody was like yeah okay yep yeah, sure And then here we are 20 years later and not a ton has changed. So I guess the question is for you trying to do this really hard stuff, this really expensive stuff. Is it just a question of waiting for some just things to get dramatically worse for people to kind of like the world to wake up and be like, okay, maybe we should, maybe you're onto something here. Maybe we should help.
1: It's already happened. You're seeing it start to kick in everywhere. And I'm not talking about people protesting. I'm talking about You know banks look at a lot of things but they look at how insurance markets develop um and when they see insurers like you know just not covering who has the loans on those houses right like so you 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 talk to the ceos of banks now and and it's completely changed and i i mean it has changed in the last year what will happen next and if you start to believe in a massive removal market so that there's a bunch of confusion around credits right so part of this is the economic part of it but what we've been doing for the past 20 years more or less is these avoidance credits right so if you it's a tax that the government puts so if you you want to pollute put up more co2 or whatever you know it helps fund this solar farm right and so it wasn't the worst idea in the world to get started but that doesn't help with the actual problem of we have to stop putting it up there and whatever's there has to come out so now people. You know, some people have started to do this voluntary thing like we did at Hopper. We do this with our money. We don't even charge our customers. We do it as with the revenue that we generate. We plant trees. And then you can feel good about this for about 20 minutes until you realize that the permanency is a real issue. Like, what happens if that forest goes down? And then if you believe that this is a short term emergency, I I sell you a ticket now, you go to Cancun, but that tree's really only going to be grown in 20 years. Like, that's dodgy at, at the best, right? Like, it's better than nothing, but it's not great. So as you start to eliminate all these things, you say, okay, well, can I actually buy to, to literally remove like my historic emissions? Can I buy to offset what I'm about to put out? Cause I can't get rid of these emissions um, like an airplane, right? There's no good solution for air travel, right? So if I'm selling a bunch of that, can I at least take it down? And then you realize that an avoidance credit is $10 a nature-based credit is 30 and a removal credit is 600, right? And you go, that's never going to work, but actually it is what it is. <laughs> it's going to cost what it's cost. So, you know, Putting something in orbit costs a lot of money. We do it anyway because we want those things up there. The The benefit to society of having something in orbit around our planet outweighs the $400 million of launch costs. So the question right now is, what will the benefit of society be of removing, you know, a, a billion tons? Until today, zero. It was wasting money. We thought we were good once it's all insurance is collapsed so it's it's purely an economic reasoning what we've realized i think we've proven this without a doubt is unless there is an opportunity for human profit or there's an immediate consequence to the established human economic infrastructure we will not act right because we've waited this long the right time to curve our emissions without removals was 1946. If we had drawn down our dependency on fossil fuels at the correct rate in 1946, we would not need to remove.
0: Deep Sky wants to take us back to 1946 in terms of where we were, pollution-wise.
1: I'm going to put a buffer, so let's call it 1930, <laughs> just to be safe, right?
0: Right.
1: Because like, you know, you would still have to do some work around it. And and you get into some complexities, there will always be residual emissions. And another example of how this whole debate gets warped is air travel is maybe 4% of emissions, but... Very few people work in a coal-fired plant, and everybody travels by plane, more or less. So we're much more sensitive to that. We could actually afford to have some emissions up, because the planet actually absorbs, the plants do. And it's just the sheer, absurd volume of what we've done that's the problem, right? And what we continue to do. If our emissions were stable around the levels we were in the 30s or 40s, um, we wouldn't need, you know, once you removed everything, you would be okay that the earth would actually be able to absorb this. Um, there are stabilizing effects. It's just that we we just did it way too fast, way too big.
0: And you've obviously done a huge deep dive in all of the data and this idea of this compounding. Do you have a sense of at least what you have seen and what you have analyzed when you talk about, say, another big one, which you've mentioned is sea level rise? The idea that, oh, this coastal city, like I was just in Florida. And you know, it's lovely, lots of beach I mean, the whole Miami is just one big beach. It's all about like two feet above sea level. Places like that will be in trouble or will have to, you know, put up, you know, hundred billion dollar seawalls just to not get destroyed. Things like, you know, how quickly we'll get there.
1: What's important to understand is that's already gone. Even if we stop the economy. So think of it this way. We are temperature anomaly which is the atmospheric anomaly of average temperature on the planet versus pre-industrial it's the number that everybody keeps quoting right and it, it's a it's a global average so it's meaningless the arctic's already seven to eight degrees warmer but i'll, I'll still use it as a as the as benchmark we slammed through 1.5 degrees right like this like june and july not only hottest on record but this whole thing of oh now the the models are predicting we have six years left to 1.5 i'm like no no we Look at the temperature. It's, it's done. We're we're past there, and we're going to go to two. And people argue it's El Nino, but like you'll see, it's going to go to two. So let's assume, by magic, we got rid of all fossil fuel at two degrees yeah. in the next twenty years, right? The Earth is now stuck at four hundred and forty parts per million, or whatever that is. And let's assume that there's no runaway, you know, feedback effect that completely, you know, sends us into Venus or something, right? Let's assume that those were true. And we ended the century, so 2100, at plus two degrees, which is actually the goal that we have as a civilization. This is what we're we're chasing. Think through this. Does the earth naturally cool itself the next day at 2101? Is it like, oh, magically that plus two degree goes away? It's of course not. CO2 stays in the atmosphere from 300 to 10,000 years, right? But let's use 300 because then the plants do a pretty good job within three centuries getting rid of a bunch of it. So that means that we are stuck at plus two degrees. What is causing the melting of the ice? The CO2 or the warming? It's the warming. So even if you get rid of the emissions, Greenland continues to melt for 300 years until it's gone. And that is 10 meters of water. You can research this right now. All of the updated models that are credible say that the ice in Greenland is gonna melt regardless of what we do. And if you look at the sea level rise around that, Miami, it's all gone. It's already all gone. Miami is
0: a dead city walking.
1: You probably keep the buildings. Maybe it's cool, like Venice, but where do you put the beach? Like it just you just can't understand it. And yeah. ten meters of water is the static level. You can't build a seawall for that. You have to no. you have to migrate out. It doesn't even this the sci-fi versions of this for these these two meter seawalls and blade runner are not enough for this. And then you get the storm frequency, then you know all the other chaotic stuff starts to, to compound. Do you still have enough fresh water to, you know, have this many people in these locations? But you have to understand that when the scientists published something that we skim over between two pictures of cats on facebook that say the models now predict that greenland is melting you just do the math on the ice it may not be in our lifetimes but we can't stop it we cannot right. reverse this it's already happened unless unless you take it out if you take the co2 out the earth cools we have to cool the earth by the same number of degrees that the anomaly represents So this year, to make it out and continue to occupy the geography that we occupy as a species, we need to cool the earth by 1.5 degrees.
0: So it's kind of like, I I take my kids camping sometimes. And then when you pick up and you leave, you have to make sure that basically it looks exactly the way it was before you got there. But we have to do that with the atmosphere of a planet. When you explain it that way doesn't it seem completely logical? Like what else would it be?
1: (laughs) (laughs) What other thing could you actually think is happening except what you just said, right? So that's the perfect way to frame it.
0: And so practically speaking, how are you approaching this? Because obviously it's like a kind of impossibly big problem. You know, if you just look at it and step back, I mean, where do you even start? Especially when, again, talking about my example with carbon capture and storage in the North Sea, 15 years ago being this, urgent quote-unquote problem that we absolutely need to figure out and it still has not been figured out how are you approaching this
1: the numbers are so daunting that you almost don't want to try it. As yeah. a, that's the first, right? So if you're going to do 800 billion tons, which is what you need to do if you stop the economy, you're going to need, you know, a hundred trillion dollars. Like none of it actually makes any sense to scale the storage, but there's one thing that people tend to easily forget is if you, if you take your cell phone, right? So this is a supercomputer that we now all have, and we walk around addicted to it. And you take the chip that's inside of that. It is the single most complicated thing that a human being has ever produced right like the the combined information density of a chip is unbelievable if you blew it up to the scale of a city it's still denser than all the buildings and the furnitures in the building um and so look at it this way it followed moore's law right which is this thing of like you know every year it gets faster we've all read about this and for some very bizarre reason we decided it only applies to computers Nothing else can follow Moore's law. Like, why? That's not how it works, right? The thing is, the, the computer chip was so valuable to us as a species that we we put our weight into it. If you go back to the 1950s and you think, what does it cost at the beginning of the curve to build an iPhone? To, the same processing power. The answer is something, the size of a building, maybe a city, and it costs 4 to $40 billion to make, yeah. right? Yet today... We walk around, every one of us, with one of these things, and we mostly use it to scroll pictures of cats or whatever you're scrolling on Instagram or TikTok, right? This is what we decided to do with the greatest invention of all time, yeah. Um, which is fine. Apply that to nuclear energy. If we had not given up on nuclear in the 1970s for a bunch of different reasons, and I'm a, I'm a child of the 80s, so I remember duck and cover. I was taught that, right, in yep. school. So... Totally. The energy source had the, ma- the same name as Armageddon. It was both called a nuke. That's it, it, not great. Like I, you could see how we got into this thinking this that nuclear was branding. the worst idea. <laughs> Very bad branding. <laughs> yes, a bunch, and, and you know, you know, Chernobyl, and there's you know, yeah. like you can see why we w- went there, right? But fundamentally, we screwed up because first of all, we put up 300 billion tons of CO2 that we could have avoided. But second, we no longer have the energy capabilities to remove the CO2, we didn't build them. But if we had followed Moore's law on nuclear, and you can actually run this chart, um, your Tesla would have the range of, you know, six million miles, because it would have a tiny nuclear factory the size of the chip. And you can say, oh, that's science fiction, but I will point to your iPhone, right? So right. what you have to realize is if as a species, we get to it right now, capturing gigatons, processing it, scaling up, figuring out how to generate the energy, and we just put the same effort we did into building these devices we used to scroll pictures of cats. There's no reason that we can't get out of this problem. It doesn't matter. that it's the largest thing we've ever undertaken. Right. And my belief is that it's going to start. We're at the very beginning. We're at cell phones, yep. 1981, right? We, and, and the difference is when we were building computers and cell phones, it was productivity. It was communication. Now it's existential. So I think we're going to move even faster. I actually think we're going to put everything we have into this. So that's how you get around the, oh my God, this is an impossible problem to solve. Why would we even try, right? You actually look at what we've done with a few things that we really put our our weight into, which is a lot of weapons that gave us the space program and a lot of silicon engineering that gave us, you know, the internet and, and right. But there's a couple of things we've done where what we've achieved in, you know, my lifetime is at least as good as what we need to solve this problem. So statement number one. Statement number two, we flew around everywhere where somebody had built a rig to remove CO2 from water or air. You know, I climbed a fence to, you know, because they wouldn't let me in. We snuck into a trailer. We went into a garage, basements, labs, like like anywhere where we thought there was carbon capture technology, we showed up and convinced them a lot. of us. And we basically said, how much does it cost to make one of these, whatever this was? And if they said $2 million, we said, great, we'll buy one and we said well here's here's a million dollars deposit is right. really that simple and we said let's all ship this in one place as quickly as humanly possible and let's run this stuff continuously for a year to get all the operational data around what works how much energy how does temperature electricity because nobody's ever done that you have to understand there's not a single carbon removal reactor factory we have factories to make car batteries we have factories to make cars we have factories to make cell phones we don't have factories to make carbon removal reactors and so how does one get to a factory well you make a bunch you run them and you figure out what works and what doesn't 100 uh, percent learning by doing nothing else um, simultaneously you got to figure out what you're going to do with the co2 so you start with a thousand tons the most you can store in a single container is 19 tons so even a thousand is a problem. If you talk ten thousand, a million tons. So you got to go underground. So what are we doing? We're drilling. We are actually doing uh, seismic surveys. We're finding locations we can store the CO2. And then the third thing we're doing is we're finding all of the points in the grid of eastern Canada, co-located with a nuclear power plant, co-located with a dam, in an uh, industrial site that used to have an aluminum factory that you know is no longer operating. We're looking at anywhere where there's excess power. Where you're close to the ocean or you have access to land to pull it out of the air, full stop. And so it is literally run everything as fast as possible, see, get operational data, write the software to operate the reactors, drill holes,
0: find power. Sounds so easy. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it was. <laughs> I, I wish it was. <laughs> no, on that point, the first point I found very interesting. So like you where did you climb a fence? A place called Squamish. So there's a there's a there's a really interesting company
1: called Carbon Engineering that was funded by Bill Gates. It's now mostly owned by Oxy, which is an oil and gas company. And they've been running a, a prototype to take CO two from the atmosphere for almost ten years. So this is this direct air capture? Yeah, exactly. It's um, it's a, it's a, they're good people, and they did let us into the building. We just had to be very insistent, and they were very kind, and we spoke to a lot of things. But they, they're they're basically operating under the agenda of their owners, and that's perfectly fine. But they were pioneers. Um, another company it's worth you know looking at is called Climeworks. Oh yeah. Um, so they've been operating out of Europe for a while. They've raised almost a billion dollars. They were very nice. We went to see them at their headquarters. They spent almost a day with us. And this was before we raised any money, so clearly they're. You know, they're they're there for the cause.
0: This sounds like, uh, on direct air capture, not to get too nerdy uh, for our listeners, but that sounds like a good idea in theory, but a very bad idea financially. Because of just the sheer, there's not the concentration in the air for this to make sense. In In other words, I've talked to a bunch of people in the climate tech world, climate investors, and they're like, I have yet to find a direct air capture thing, which is basically you have a bunch of fans, you suck in this air, and then you pull out the CO2, and that's how it works where it makes any kind of financial sense.
1: To what? To present day economics or to yeah. what we'll be willing to pay when there's no more insurance, right? So th- mm. th- there's there's a couple of statements that are true about this. If you look at the first generation of technology, um, so things like uh, carbon engineering or even what Climeworks is running, What those guys did, and a lot of them started 12, 15 years ago to their credit, right? And a lot of the research predates that. So these are people that were visionaries by any stretch of the imagination. But what they did is they took the technology that oil and gas has been using to capture at the chimney, where we were talking about the 30% concentrations. And so if you think of where that technology got developed, and the first time we did this was 1972, so we've had a long technology curve on this. You're sitting on an oil and gas field, you have all the power in the form of heat. They counted in gigajoules, right? And so you basically push the CO2 streams into a filter or a liquid. You heat it, and then you pull it out. You wait for the liquid or the filter to cool, and then you go again. The problem isn't the cost of those materials if if we're willing to take all the money we have. The problem with that becomes, very simply put, it's too much energy. Yeah. So at 4,000 kilowatts per ton, I would have to cover Australia in solar panels to reverse climate change and that's not going to happen even if they're very nice and they're willing to let us put it right so you you need a series of technologies that are it's not a dollar cost that's going to be the bear it's the energy cost so if you're at a thousand kilowatts you know one fourth you start to be able to draw some curves that make sense and luckily in the past three to four years there's a bunch of companies that have come out things like captura mission zero ebb aquatic um heirloom is doing something interesting out of san francisco carbon blue out of israel these are younger founders that are you know they're, they're getting into this a lot of them come from software it's a bunch yeah. of google and spacex people in this a lot of it's in California and. In Europe and Israel, unsurprisingly, these guys looked at it and said, "It has to be put in a liquid. We have to use electricity. It can't be heat based." And so, when you push CO two into water, it dissolves. So you can do that. You can pull it out of the ocean. And so, when you look at the energy profile of those technologies, there's hope. You can see us scaling that. It won't be magical. None of this is fusion, but you can actually get to infrastructure where you're looking at a hundred, you know, thousand ton site. It's about an acre. You got to multiply that by 20,000, it kind of breaks your brain, but you can actually draw a straight line where it's not completely crazy.
0: How do you talk to your kids about all this? You know, I have a four and a six-year-old and I don't talk to them about it all at the moment, but kids have a way of asking tough questions that when you least expect it. And it is something that you kind of, well, especially for you having done all this work and, you know, having a very clear eyed vision of what awaits.
1: As a fellow parent, you understand that was an issue. Interestingly, kids do something magical too. So, first of all, if you talk to anybody, um, I'll make my way down to the you know the ten year old. If you talk to anybody under thirty, they do not believe it's going to be okay. Yeah, you can try. it. Like, what do you think? You think we're hitting our targets? Thinks we're going to be okay? There's nobody under thirty, certainly not under twenty five, that believes a single word of anything that isn't what I've already told. You in this in this interview so when i'm talking to a room full of 60 or 70 year olds they get defensive right when i'm talking to people my age 50 40 it's more like oh yeah I, i'm anxious about this right yeah. and then when i talk when i pitch this to you know 20 year olds they're like why are you why are you talking about this of course we're, we're like this is all going to happen we know it we're not stupid why are you why are you mansplaining that this catastrophe to <laughs> so us? we all understand <laughs> it right and so it's very very different there's a crazy scale so Will our children grow up with climate anxiety? Of course they will. We got to give up on that. You can't, you can't protect them against that. Yeah. Um, so, what I'm trying to do is, you know, there's ways to talk about things. I go to my daughter and I've asked her, hey, you know, you're hearing me tell me to talk about all this stuff. Are you scared? And she, she looks at me and she says, yes. And then she asked me one question, and you'll write this, it's like, but are you trying to fix this? And I said, yes, I'm really trying. And then she said, then it's going to be okay. To this point, I've left it at that. (laughs) That (laughs) And, you know, she's turning 11. By the time she's 14, I think she'll realize that I can't actually fix this. But, you know, I'm using that to buy time. The social cognitive impact of a generation growing up underneath. And again, I... The '80s was really weird because we all went to bed 100% sure we were going to die in a nuclear holocaust, right? You know, if you're if you're in my, in my age group, you have some understanding of this. And then in 1990, the Berlin Wall fell, and yeah. although all the nukes were still there, it was okay. We all forgot, totally. it looked like the pandemic. But I grew up as an anxious kid because of the the whole, you know. And you know, I'm I'm the the younger version of the generations that were exposed to this from the '60s and '70s. This is the load that our kids are going to have to bear. We, you, know, yeah. it's just, you know, as a, as a society, we have, we have given them this as a gift. Um, I don't know what the impacts are going to be, but I know that in 20 years, we're not going to talk about the psychological damage of the pandemic. We're going to be talking about the psychological damage of this.
0: And you're optimistic.
1: I think we can fix this, but we have to start. <laughs> we have to get to work. I believe in human ingenuity.
0: I think I agree with you. But I do think, just again, as a journalist for too many years now, you kind of realize that like nothing really happens until one, as you say, no one's going to really do stuff unless you know there's a real clear profit motive, and or something really terrible happens, some event that makes people unable to deny what is really happening, and it sounds like, at least from where you sit. That probably both of those things. I mean, you can argue argue a lot of this. The bad stuff is already happening. It's just going to get a lot worse before people.
1: So I think you have your finger on it. So yeah, you know, think terrible events that have changed society. You know, you can go with the. The world trade towers you know you can go with you know russia invading ukraine if you live in that part of the world that's probably the worst thing that's ever happened you can go with the second world war you could take any event either singular you know whether it's a a bombing a local catastrophe or something that was long you know and a lot of these things are pandemics and and wars on a on a on a historic time frame here's why i think we're going to fix this we're going to get one a year every year something so bad is going to happen somewhere, and probably in multiple places. So how many years before we realize that every year, something terrible, the nuke calamity that's going to you know, kill hundreds of thousands of people? Um, it's already starting, right? And then the second part where I believe we're going to do something about this, when you start to have massive migration so like what's happening in the Mediterranean right now, you know, most people can't put Uruguay on a map, right? Like properly, like the, you know, we we all say this in school and forgot about it, but if there's no more water in that country, what are they going to do? They're going to start to go north and it's already starting to happen all the way up to Canada, right? So once you start to have massive pressure like these populations of millions of people that are starting to to move. Or you're stabbing cases like Syria. Syria, the war is based, it's 100% climate change. What happened is there's a drought there. Agriculture collapsed in Syria, which is basically what I'm predicting for a lot of other places, but it's already happened there. All of the military-age men, everybody else but also the military-age men, moved into the cities, picked up guns. It's not very difficult to understand, and look what you get. So once there's enough of these pockets of instability, once there's enough pressure on borders that are opening up, it's going to be easy. (laughs) Like, I'm 100% sure of this. Getting people motivated to fix this is going to be easy, because you're not going to have to wait 20 years for the next calamity. What I'm hoping is a few of us are going to get the technology far enough ahead so that when somebody goes, "Damn, if we only knew how to do this," we can we can raise our hand and say, "Look, we are actually we're not all that way there yet, but if you give me a trillion dollars, we can scale this."
0: And just to be clear, Deep Sky, right now you have a warehouse full of like carbon removal stuff that you're just running and analyzing. We're
1: starting to build that warehouse. Yeah, so we we've just raised uh, our Series A, so we have. It's probably going to be 70 million dollars give or take.
0: 70, that's a big series. 70,
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a part of what, you know, having done this for a while and so we, we have access to capital and a good network but also you need more money than to build a dating app because um, you need to do <laughs> drilling and things like that um, so you know there's a there's a there's a there's a very material yeah. aspect of this that you don't have a choice and the first thing we did is again we've, we've we're licensing anybody who has a reactor and we're trying to get it co-located to operate it but at the same time you have to worry about Let's say we reach a million tons. Where do we put it? So we're doing drilling again. We're operating all the traditional things that an oil and gas company would do, and that takes some money. When you look at the second step, which is we're aiming to build a 250,000 ton plant, which it's probably going to be two plants, one ocean, one air, most likely not co-located for a bunch of technical reasons. That's probably a 300 million dollar build, maybe 500 million. Again, we don't know because nobody's ever run anything. But once we have that operational data, we'll zoom in on that. And so that's infrastructure financing. There are already banks that are talking about this. There are hedge funds that are trying to deploy billions of dollars in these projects. So the market's there. The funding's all there. It's just not very public. And so the way to think of this is if you were investing in oil and gas in the 1930s, you were taking infrastructure-level risk and getting stock market returns. Now, I know that putting that in contrast with the fall of civilization seems like incredibly dark, but I actually think it's the right way to frame this problem is we are at a cycle of this, where capital deployed into this, and let's be clear, money is a proxy that we use as a civilization to identify what we believe as a society has value it's better than killing each other for, you know, our food with sticks, right? So it has a lot of problems, but money is a proxy to something we value. A all-star basketball player has a lot of societal value, so we pay them a lot, right? Apparently a CEO, you know, I would debate the the exact math that we use around that, <laughs> being a CEO myself, but a CEO apparently is worth a lot of money to society. And, you know, so... The money part is just a proxy, but if it doesn't align, it means society's not ready to address this problem. If I can raise a billion dollars to build an air capture plant and then sell the ton at $800, the notion of expensive is irrelevant. A house in Malibu is worth what the person is willing to pay for it. That's the way to think about this.
0: Fascinating. Is there anything else we didn't cover?
1: I think you've covered all of it. What I'm seeing, and this is what I always try to close on is... Every smart person of my generation, almost all of them, did not go into public service or government. Right? You know, if you go back in the 40s and fifties and sixties, this is tradition, right? Like Yale, like people yep. would then go serve in government. We all went to banking and tech to get as rich as we could. And so now a lot of us have. And we're kind of contemplating what to do with the meager years we have left. And you're like, wait, wait, like this is happening on our watch. And it's we didn't cause all of it, but we're the ones that could actually put a dent in it. I'm also seeing anybody under 25 is thinking, how do I go work on climate? And so, A, you know, if you're anybody listening to this that's super smart, that, you know, has any skills that might match anything, like come to us or find somebody that's doing something similar and say, you know, I'd like to work for you. A lot of this is going to get, is about getting the talent concentrated in this category faster. And second, if anybody listening, you know, is like, you know, 4.0 grades at Stanford Tech and is thinking, what should I go into? Should I go into crypto or this? Please go into this, right? (laughs) Like I want as many competitors as possible. Like we will, we will like literally let you copy what we're doing if you think there's a better way of doing it. Like everybody now that has talent, energy, that's creative, that has math skill, that can write code, that can assemble something, like should be looking at how they can contribute to one or another version of this problem. So if if anything, if we can inspire other people to get into this, like I'll have done my job today.
0: Yeah. And I think to to your point around, you know, just like to be a bit crude about it, the profit aspect of it. I mean, when you talk about climate change generally, what you're really talking about is remaking the entire world and how kind of everything is made and done and moved. So yeah, great risk, but also, I mean, kind of generational, multi-generational opportunity.
1: If you're a money manager, you control assets, you, you're wealthy, you have a family office, whatever, and you think that you can continue to make returns the way you have, the way your dad had or his granddad did. Um, first of all, you're on the wrong side of history. <laughs> You'll be the person that didn't, you know, apply any in any of the assets that you have against this. But also, you're wrong. You're going to end up in a very, very dire financial situation because if there's no food, GDP goes negative. If GDP is permanently negative, all asset classes go down. That's ask Warren Buffett. That's just math. So yeah. anybody that actually manages money needs to be you know, gradually carving out allocations for point source capture energy transition and and air removal there's no you can't argue that any other way if you're using the same set of facts so that's another thing if you're managing money you should start to look at that and if you do it because it's the right thing or for profit right now i don't care
0: yeah 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 look thank you for your time it's fascinating and terrifying all at once but um we'll definitely have you back on as as you get the factory up and raise money and start to get this stuff out in the wild
1: Would love to. This was great. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Frederick for taking the time. I want to thank you all for listening, for the ratings, for the reviews, for sticking with us through yet another year. And yeah, we'll be writing about something along these lines this week in the paper. So do check that out at thetimes.co.uk or pick up an actual paper. Or you can also find me online at... Danny Fortson on Twitter, or you can email me Danny.fortson at Thank you, thank you, as always, and we'll talk to you very soon. Bye bye.